Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the last uh, roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power of 2018. Um, this week we've been also looking at the applications, loads and loads of brilliant applications for the new job, which is going to be sourcing content from the developing world, the global south, whatever you want to call it, basically people who don't look like me, um, which is going to kick in in next year and be the next phase of the blog. So I'm just incredibly excited about taking the blog in this new direction. We'll see where it ends up. Anyway, back to the posts. Um, Monday, we had Andrew Johnston, uh, and uh, someone who teaches good writing, replying to Kate Murphy's post from last week. There seems to be an inexhaustible appetite for discussion on how to write better. And judging by how bad a lot of the writing is in our business, bring it on, I think. Um, so Andrew's argument was that, you know, it's no good saying dev speak is bad, the jargon, the, the, the internal sort of talk, and plain language is always good. They both have their uses, and the key thing is to know, know your audience, because you may need to be able to combine both. Um, so a bit of, you know, the technical language for the insiders plus a more popular language for a wider audience. So it's, a, it's that ability to, um, to combine it. And he ended with a nice quote from someone from one of his workshops. Oh, I get it. So each of us needs to be our own communications officer, which sounds very sensible. You need to be able to do the, the, the technical and the, the popular. And when we divide them up, I think uh, it's not always a, a very successful strategy. On Tuesday, I uh, did a podcast with a colleague at LSE, Jean-Paul Faget, who is a kind of guru on decentralization in Latin America. Um, he's written this really interesting paper looking at why a, a hitherto stable political party systems just suddenly collapse, which happened in, Boli uh, in Bolivia in the early 2000s. Um, throughout a whole period of instability, hyperinflation, coups, you know, just general Bolivian chaos, the same political parties and even the same individual leaders had just survived and kept coming back. And then something happened in, in the early 2000s and suddenly all the old political parties disappeared and a new uh, movement led by Evo Morales, the MAS, the Movimiento del Socialismo, um, emerged. And Jean-Paul traces it to the unintended consequence of a decentralization process which pushed power down to the village level and people started to realize that the kinds of things that mattered at village level were not being represented by uh, traditional politicians. And over a period of about 10 years, this actually ate away at the foundations of the political party system and laid the basis for a new one. And then Jean-Paul speculates wildly about um, you know, what what's the relevance to the to the kind of chaos we see in europe in italy spain um you know uh, belgium britain possibly in terms of the sort of upheaval of these stable political party systems and he ties it all back to what he calls political cleavages that you know when the political party system is designed for a particular set of cleavages you know classically uh, workers and capital and then that system changes and no one's working in factories anymore and capital has become much more fluid, then that creates a kind of brittleness which means that a little push will tip it over into a new equilibrium and that that's what's going on in a lot of um, uh, previously stable systems. Really good stuff. So there's a, a podcast and a summary of his uh, academic paper on that if you're interested. And then a completely opposite approach on Wednesday, one of the LSE's researchers from its um, public authority 
center, uh, Robin Orien, is a, uh, uh, has been doing research in northern Uganda on witch doctors. And the thing which caught my eye, I, I met him during a workshop training session uh, in Mombasa a few months ago. The thing which caught my eye is that he'd just gone out and asked a witch doctor what they do all day uh, and how they became a witch doctor. And it's just really interesting. So he's got a kind of combination of her struggle to avoid becoming a witch doctor, which involved becoming an evangelical Christian and then eventually succumbing to a really powerful jock with a sort of spirit that turns people into witch doctors. Um, and then a sort of day in the life. What do you, what's, your, what's your job description as a witch doctor? And it turns out she does a whole bunch of things which, which actually would you know, fall under various developmental headings. So she does mental health, she does peace building, she does family therapy, she does livelihoods promotion, she even does disaster risk reduction. So just really interesting looking at something which is kind of othered and exoticized like being a witch doctor through the eyes of something more familiar, which is, you know, the, the kind of developmental roles that a witch doctor plays. So I really love that piece from Robin. It was great. On Thursday, I did a book review. I've always been a kind of technophobe, technosceptic, not, not impressed by collectivism, very suspicious that people are overselling whether you can just do everything online. Collectivism is the, uh, the, the pejorative term for it. But I read a book called New Power by uh, Jeremy Hymans and Henry Tins. And these are two people who've been very much at the centre of the sort of building the online activist community in Australia and the US. Um, and uh, basically they convinced me. So um, and what I particularly liked about it was that they weren't, they, did, they, they didn't seem to be overselling to the, you know, um, stellar degree that some of the um, online activists oversell. They were actually talking about how do you combine old power and new power, traditional advocacy, online advocacy, um, and the thing I really liked is the book is absolutely full of case studies, both case studies of success, but also case studies of failure. And yeah, the one which really struck me was the whole discussion on the Boaty McBoatface uh, saga, which uh, I won't spoil it for you, but uh, look at the blog. But basically they said, what if the old fusty academics who were horrified when people all piled in and tried to name a British research ship, Boaty McBoatface, what if they'd said, fine, let's go with it? It could have absolutely transformed the way people see research in the UK. And instead, they lost their nerve and shut it all down. And what a wasted opportunity that was. I thought that was really interesting. Then Friday, a final seasonal set of links I linked, uh, links I liked. Um, and I tried to, you know, we all need a bit of positive news. So I was looking at some of the positives that have come out recently. So progress, you know, qualified, limited, but progress in terms of global governance. Who would have expected that? So two new agreements, one on migration uh, and one on um, climate change and sort of some useful links if people want to know more about what's been agreed. And then finally, Kay Rayworth, uh, a former colleague at Oxfam. She actually worked in my, I, was pre I pretended to be her boss at one time, who has since just gone absolutely stellar. And uh, I put up her, she's, her TED talk was voted number two of the year by the guy who you know, is in charge of TED talks. It's had 1.3 million hits. It's absolutely genius, uh, presenting her donut economics um, and critiquing growth. And I urge you to have a look at that. So some good news for the end of the year. And with that, I am signing off and I will see you in 2019. Have a good break if you're having a break. Bye.